0: believe that even though it's an ancient book, it is still very much relevant for us today. If you're one of the younger people in the room, put your hand up if you'd like a clipboard with like a worksheet that will help you to stay focused and listen, uh, and there'll be people. Thank you. Yes, I see one very young person in the last row there requesting one. <laughs> okay, we're just finding them. Okay, so we'll, I'll chat and Matt will come and chat as well. Now this morning, because there's communion, we won't have time for the q and A session. But that doesn't mean you can't ask questions. So uh, speak to people around you. Come and nab Matt at the end. I'm sure he'd love to speak to you as well. So don't be stuck with your questions. But over to Matt, and we'll get the sheets out to you as soon as they're here. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dancy. Thank you, uh, amazing team, dealing with all the things going on this morning. I think it really is one of the great privileges just to see uh, how everyone works together to make us... uh, able to celebrate what Jesus has done week by week together as a church. My name's Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. And uh, it's my privilege this morning to help us study together what God has said in his Bible. And rather than just looking at tiny slices of what we find in the Bible in isolation, reading things in their context, reading them in the light of what surrounds them is always important. And each passage um, we study fits into the, the bigger story. It fits into the, the stories around it like kind of pieces of a puzzle. They need to be taken together. And this week is particularly important for us to think about context because this passage is tied explicitly to what comes before by its first word. And then next week we'll find again that next week's passage is tied back to what's happening here by the way that one starts too. So what is the wider story? Well, the the wider story is, after listening to Jesus set out his blueprint for his kingdom... Of transformed hearts, after seeing Jesus teach with authority through the sermon um, on the mount we 've been watching Jesus act with the same awesome extraordinary authority and it 's like it 's a bit like he 's going up a ladder of steps of authority going up rung by rung, and although some of these are a little bit tenuous, some of them are really obvious so so what have we seen well we 've seen um, authority over defilement, right? We saw him touch and cleanse a leper. And then we saw authority over sickness, where he heals with just a word. And then we saw authority over his disciples, right? They have to have a higher allegiance than to their comfort, a higher allegiance than to their family, their relationships even. We saw authority over the natural. If you remember, he commands the winds and the waves as God alone can do. And then we saw authority over the supernatural. So he commands legions of demons to leave, far beyond any human power, one word of Jesus. Then we saw authority over sin itself. And that's like the sole preserve of God. That's declaring his identity. And then last week, we saw Jesus declaring his mission. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if we want to frame that around authority, we might say we saw Jesus' authority to call. He has his authority to call whoever he chooses into his people, into his new life, and into his service. Now, that is a lot of authority, and there's still more to come, but we shouldn't be surprised because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him, which actually reminds me of a song, which I thought we might just sing together, and this week we might sing it together maybe Without words, okay? So there's a little memory test. If you've not been with us before, no embarrassment at all. If you have been with us for like nine weeks and you've no idea what this is, well, there you go. Try and learn it this week. You'll get it. all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Now, hot on the heels of that last declaration about Jesus's authority to call, and moments before he goes up the next rung, which we'll see next week, we get what looks like a bit of an interlude. You're like, how does this fit in to the theme of authority? Jesus gets another challenge to the way that he's going about things, the way he's he's calling his disciples, the way he's teaching them to behave. And by the time we're done this morning, I hope you can all see how this kind of connects to the theme of authority, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, this week's passage, I have to tell you, before, before we get there, this week's passage is tricky. Um, really had me and the team scratching our heads over how to rightly understand it as we looked at it, as we talked it through together, and we're going to have to think our way through it quite carefully this morning so that we get it right and so we understand what Jesus is telling us here. It's easy to take a wrong turn and to hear what you think Jesus is saying and get the wrong end of the stick. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask a series of questions, and then we're going to walk through answering them one by one. Ready to go? We're going to read and We're in Matthew chapter 9, and we're starting at verse 14. Uh, It's just a few short verses, but I think actually this morning you'll find it really helpful to have a Bible open in front of you if you can do that. So it's page 974 in our Blue Bibles, and Tom's reading for us this morning. Chapter 9, big 9, and we're starting at verse 14, page 974. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. There we go. Got it. Thanks, Tom. A short passage. Not necessarily completely obvious what's going on. So we're going to think through this together and think about that context of authority. Let me give you one more piece of context. Okay, two weeks back, Jesus is challenged by these teachers of the law. Some of the teachers of the law said, This fellow is blaspheming. Last week, we saw Jesus challenged by the Pharisees. The Pharisees asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And this week, you get another group. Who are showing up with their challenge? John's disciples. Then John's disciples come and ask him to get these three challenges, one after the other. Now, who are we dealing with this time? The followers of John, and not the followers of our John. Though he does obviously have his followers, loads of them, I imagine. But um, these are the followers of John the Baptist, Jesus's forerunner. And we met John earlier in this gospel account that we're reading of the life of Jesus, in Matthew's telling of the story of Jesus, and he calls out to everyone. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we heard there were huge crowds going out to meet him in the desert, confessing their wrongs, and they're being baptized by him in a river as a sign of their repentance. Well, this John, This John is uh, in prison now. Now, that's another story. But the disciples must have been so impacted by him and his teaching that they're still trying to live it out. And they're wondering why Jesus and his disciples are following such a different pattern. See, did you notice here that John's disciples, well, they fast often. The Pharisees fast often. And from what we read about elsewhere in the Bible, it looks like this often is as much as twice a week. Two days a week, the Pharisees are fasting. And um, that's a a stark contrast to Jesus' disciples, because they just rolled out of a party. They've been feasting, not fasting. And so John's disciples are like, well, how come? It's a very reasonable question, really. But before we, we tackle the question of why Jesus' disciples don't fast, We really need to start with the question, well, why do John's disciples do fast? Why are they fasting? Why do the Pharisees fast? Why why do they fast so often? Fasting, by the way, if you're not familiar with that term, is just forgoing something, typically forgoing food, maybe food uh, and water as well. Now, we might be tempted, since there are Pharisees involved, to think fasting is about point scoring because these Pharisees are performers, they're box tickers. They're kind of uh, achievers of things. If they, we could think this is about obedience, detailed obedience to the law of Moses that they tried to live under, dotting the I's, crossing the T's to score top marks. But, but that is not obviously the case with this fasting often. See, there is only one commanded regular fast in the whole of that Mosaic law once a year uh, around Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. So, so fasting often isn't, isn't simply carefully keeping the law. Well, it can't be keeping the law. That's not what you have to do to keep the law. Instead, if you look at the the picture Jesus paints of what they're doing, he describes, he equates their fasting with mourning. In the picture he uses to explain what they're doing and why his disciples are different, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he he is with them? And, And when you read about fasting in the Old Testament, although sometimes it is associated with especially seeking God's attention. Like maybe you'll know the story of Queen Esther calls all the Jewish people to fast before she dares to approach the king. What's primarily associated with mourning? I'm often over wrongdoing, whether that's corporate. Here's just one example. They fasted and confessed we've sinned against the Lord. So that kind of Corporate mourning over wrongdoing, or sometimes um, personal wrongdoing. This is King David. King David fasted and wept. Who knows? He thought, perhaps the Lord may be gracious to I me. Mean, David needs that forgiveness. He's sorrowful over his wrongdoing there. Why do John's disciples, why do the Pharisees fast often? Well, if it's mourning like how Jesus pictures it, What are they mourning? What what are they mourning multiple times a week? What are they mourning that it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus' disciples to also be mourning? As I've reflected on and studied this, I think we have to see they are mourning sin and they're mourning the judgment particularly that comes with it. Mourning it personally perhaps, but I think more extensively mourning it as a part of God's wider people. And I think you get your heads around this a little bit by thinking about the exile, right? What the exile is is when God takes his people who are misbehaving, ignoring him and turning a deaf ear to him and sends them out of the land as a judgment on them, a judgment on their sin. Well, during that period, the one fast a year around the Day of Atonement becomes four fasts a year. Zechariah 8.19 speaks about the fast of the fourth, the fifth the seventh and the tenth months, four fasts a year. That's a lot more fasting than just one a year. It's not two a week, but it's heading in the same direction. And each of those dates, these months here, marks a critical step in the downfall of God's people. And in their casting out the siege of Jerusalem, right? It's capture, the burning down of the city and its temple, the killing of their appointed king. By the time of Jesus, they're back into the land. By the time of Jesus, the temple has been rebuilt out of the ashes. So why are they still mourning? Well, it really feels like the restoration they've seen. is just a pale shadow of what it was. It's not a full kind of restore. It's like a a, a sketched outline, sort of like a picture still that needs filling in. It's, It's clear to God's people every day that they still sit under judgment because They're still living under Roman rule. They're living under the kind of oppressive thumb of this great empire. And that's just for starters. So if we think of fasting as mourning over God's judgment, well, that would definitely seem appropriate still. But why are they mourning so much, right? One fast, then at the exile, four fasts, now perhaps as much as twice a week. Why step it up so much? I think the answer has to be that this is in urgent hope that this morning is about to finally come to an end. In anticipation, there's finally going to be an end to this time of judgment. That restoration they've been hoping for is really just around the corner. That what John had announced to his disciples was really true, right? The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's at hand. It's almost touchable. It's that close. Now, would that give you that sort of intensity around fasting and hoping this is perhaps the restoration? Now, the hopes these people have for restoration were focused down onto a single individual that had been prophesied, promised, uh, anticipated. They called this the, the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, is simply a foreign language way of saying the same thing. This Messiah would come and he would restore the kingdom. So when John says the kingdom of heaven has come near, is at hand, they're thinking, well, the Messiah, this promised one, must be as well. Now, if, if this is what they're fasting for, yes, bring restoration. Yes, we're sorry, restore things. Yes, bring the promised one, bring the Messiah. Then it makes great sense why Jesus' his disciples don't fast, because they know the king has come. and When Jesus uses the picture uh, of a wedding to explain why his disciples aren't fasting, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them. It's tied up with exactly the same picture. See, the picture of the bride and the groom, the picture of this big wedding coming is one the Old Testament uses repeatedly to show us how God ultimately plans to restore his people. He'll come like a a bridegroom. He'll remove their shame. He'll marry them. He'll be with them forever. Now, in our culture, we have this special song, Here Comes the Bride da, 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 da. And um, that's when everyone stands. And the joyful celebration of a marriage begins. Well, in their culture, it was all, here comes the groom. And when the groom arrived, the party started. And Jesus says he's, he's like a groom. Now, it, it uses the word bridegroom here, so don't get confused with the sort of people who brush horses kind of grooms. Not that kind of groom. It's, the, it's the bridegroom that's in view. And when the bridegroom shows up, it's time for the party to get started. The wedding guests can't mourn. It will be totally wrong. The groom's here, the Messiah, the promised king. And the funny thing is that John himself used similar language to talk about Jesus when the two of them met. The groom has come, and joy rather than mourning is the order of the day. This is uh, in another one of the tellings of the life of Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom, that's John talking about himself, I'm like the friend who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, he says, when he meets Jesus. That joy is mine and it's now complete. So John understood that Jesus was the bridegroom who was coming and he's there. Perhaps these disciples of John missed that special meeting, right? Maybe they were out to lunch or you know, on a tea break or, or maybe John had sent them on a long mission or maybe they came to John before he met Jesus and have been following him since that. Perhaps they just lost hope with John being in prison and everything seeming to fall apart. But they're fasting, they're mourning, they're longing. Just, it just can't fit with the promised Groom, the Messiah being right there in front of them. We spent a whole six months this year working through Jesus's famous teaching, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Again and again, we saw Jesus was laying out the blueprint for his kingdom of transformed hearts. And do you remember the famous Beatitudes, perhaps, that that sermon begins with? Blessed are the blessed are the blessed are the, these are called the, the Beatitudes. Well, in the middle of those Beatitudes, you see this in Matthew 5:4. blessed are the are those who mourn? That same idea of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we saw that the brokenness of our world would finally be mended. We saw that this um, this longing we have for things to be finally made right would be fulfilled through the coming of Jesus, the righteous one, through his transforming of our hearts and building his kingdom. That we saw that the time for mourning was passed. This has finally happened. The hunger for righteousness is filled. The comforter has come. That, that word, they will be comforted, the same word is used of the Holy Spirit, the comforter. He's come. He's here. Jesus is saying that he has come to rescue and transform his people. He's come to be with them forever. And Of course, that calls for celebration, not the kind of fasting that is mourning. Are you with me? Does that kind of make sense? We've got our heads around how this fits together so far. So, these disciples' fasting is them longing for the coming of the one who is anticipated, thinking it's near, perhaps, anticipating imminently, but that it hasn't yet happened. And Jesus is everything they're longing for and more. He's restoration. He is transformation. He's one who's come to heal sinners and call them into his service like we heard last week. Now, if we've got our head around that, we're ready to have a go at the last bit, which again is one of those things you read it through and you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and then you get to the end of it and you're like, what did Jesus mean? so let's let's try that, okay. The new patch old garment, the new wine, old wine skin, and a wineskin, by the way, just animal skin, cleaned up, sewn up as a sort of flexible bag. Anyone want to sip out of that boy? <laughs> um, th- it doesn't matter what the vintage is, right that is you um. New skins, kind of stretchy, so new skins could cope with the gas given off by the fermenting grape juice. That is, that's what new wine is. New wine is grape juice that is still fermenting the sugar away. Old skins get tough and brittle. Here's our, our, our modern equivalent, my trusty stainless steel pressure fermenter, considerably less gross. And normally copes just fine with the, the pressure it's under normally. <laughs> but that is a, uh, another story about the, the, the roof. Anyway, okay, old garment old wineskin, what is it that cannot be joined to the new? What is it that cannot contain the new thing? Well, it'd be really tempting here to say it is the Mosaic law be really tempting to say it's the Mosaic law. You just can't mix that old law and this new gospel. You put them together, there's a lot of explosion. Martin Luther would be like, yes, exactly. That's definitely what it's about. Um, th- th- The new Jesus way can't be patched into the old and fragile law. The new Jesus way doesn't fit within the old inflexible law. It's going to destroy it. The only problem we've got with that is that Jesus himself told us he absolutely did not come to abolish the law. He's not come to abolish the law. His coming didn't further damage a law that is already torn at the edges like that old garment. His coming doesn't burst a law that's become inflexible and hard. That's not how Jesus speaks about the law at all. Not one stroke will disappear by any means from this. The law's not going anywhere. It's not gone anywhere. So if it's not the law that is incompatible, what what is it that Jesus declares to be incompatible with this new? I think we have to see this old garment, this old wineskin as the way it was right to live, the way it was appropriate to live in the age of mourning and longing and hoping and expectation, living in that incompatibility between the holiness of God and the brokenness that we live in and that we ourselves are, living under the right judgment of God on that brokenness, living in the age of waiting. And yes, they were waiting with a hope, but they were still waiting with a hope unfulfilled. What's the, what's the new patch? What's the new wine that is not compatible with that? Well, it is Jesus come. It's the fact of Jesus here with mercy for sinners, come to call us into his service. Just like last week, we we saw him call to Matthew, come follow me. Well, Jesus is the promised one. He's come transforming our hearts. He's come bringing his new kingdom, just like we saw when we studied our way through the Sermon on the Mount. What is Jesus's point with his picture? What is Jesus's point with these parables? The old, living in mourning, hope still unfulfilled, is incompatible with Messiah come. It's impossible to hold the two together. Everyone knows you can't put the fresh and the new into the old and the inflexible. So when God pours out his new wine, he doesn't do that resulting in the same old shapes and the same old patterns of life. It's fundamentally incompatible. It's impossible. Instead, life, the life of Messiah come has to take a different shape. And that, I think, answers one final question. What is this new wineskin that you can put the new wine into? Well, it's a life shaped by the truth of Messiah come. That's not a life of fasting and mourning. It's a life of feasting, a life of rejoicing that the Messiah has come, a life of becoming ourselves, that kingdom of transformed hearts breaking into this World all around, a life of hearing and responding to God's call. And as God pours out this new wine, as Messiah is come, that can only result in a new shape of life. Kind of makes sense? The big question always is well, so what? Okay, perhaps now I understand that slightly better, but what difference? Does it make? Well, I I think what I want to ask us to think about today, what I want to, I think this passage calls us to do is to live a life shaped by the Messiah's merciful call. And and I think there are a few different aspects to this. So, first up, is our life shaped by his call? What would that look like? It would be the life of somebody who is forgiven. The life of the forgiven. Now, as Christians, we are reconciled to God. We're no longer his enemy. We shouldn't be living in sorrow under the faults and failures of our past. We should be living joyfully free of them by God's grace. I found a helpful quote about this. It talks about being unable to remember the wrongs of our past without also remembering God's greater grace to us. That's quite helpful. When I think about the things that hang over me from my past, can I do that? without thinking of the greater grace over them. Well, that shows I am not living yet the life of the forgiven. And then think about the life of the forgiven as we grasp just how completely and greatly we're recipients of mercy ourselves. We should be living mercifully to others in reflection, just like Jesus taught in his pattern for prayer, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Overwhelming mercy received obliges us to be people of overwhelming mercy. So, a life shaped by Messiah's merciful call, a life shaped by a Savior come, a life shaped by a Messiah here with us. What's that? That's the life of the forgiven, but it's also the life of the transformed. Now, new wine tells the same story Jesus will tell elsewhere with dough. A little yeast, works its way through the whole batch of dough. Both picture as an unstoppable, a transformative power, a work on something that uh, makes it new, that transforms. Yeast transforms dough. Yeast transforms grape juice. It it creates something new, something expansive. See how the dough grows? Yeah, you've seen the dough rise? You need a new wineskin as the wine ferments, not an old one, or at least good pressure. Now, a, a, a life shaped by Messiah's merciful call is a life that is being transformed. And what does transformation actually look like? Well, it looks like conforming more and more to Jesus's blueprint for the kingdom of transformed hearts, that, that one that he presented through the Sermon on the Mount that we spent those last months thinking our way through. So, if you were there, um, do you remember these? I've got a little one here. We made these little flyers for you. Remember these These uh, help us think about the things Jesus is explaining to us in the Sermon on the Mount about what the life of the new kingdom looks like. If you were here while we worked through this, we made an opportunity to respond. I've written my responses in here. And uh, I guess my question to you is, have you dropped the ball on how you wanted to respond? Well, now's simply the time to pick it up again, not to mourn over having failed, but to pick it up. Again, if you weren't here, you can pick one of these up from the bookcase uh, on the way out the door. Read through Jesus' teaching. Think about where he's calling you to grow towards his kingdom and his righteousness. Okay, so life shaped by the Messiah's merciful call is shaped by being forgiven, shaped by being transformed, but it's also shaped by being called. Last week, we saw Jesus' call, follow me. His first call to Matthew was to follow me, the tax collector. And Jesus' called to all of us is the same. He says, follow me. We're never just saved from, right? We're never just forgiven. We're also saved for. Uh, in, in Ephesians, Paul writes about this so clearly. It's one of the, the clearest expositions of how we are saved simply by God's grace. But in the very next verse, he underlines that we were saved for works, right? By grace, you're saved, not by works. Definitely no works on that side of things, But we're God's handy. We're created to do good works. We were saved for something. Now, Jesus calls all of us into his service, all of us into his mission. And that call is not for like level seven Christians who have summited, not for when we're fully sorted and transformed. It's the call that begins right now. Just like Matthew invites his friends to come to a feast with Jesus and his disciples hot on the heels of his own call. And sure, you might not, get it all right. You might not know everything and understand how it all fits together. You might not be sorted yourself. I am not sorted myself either. But still, Jesus begins with a call. He sends us out. I think there's a big truth for us there. The, the, The life of transformation is inextricably linked with the life of following Jesus's call to share this good news. See that in the life of his disciples? He sends them out. As a part of their transformation, as a part of their discipleship, transformation actually comes through working out Jesus' call. It's not like preparation for it, like there's some step one, transformed, perfected. Step two, okay, now you can follow Jesus' call that you eventually graduate to. So there are my three things for us to take away. What would it look like to be that new wineskin shaped By the truth that Messiah has come with this merciful call, was the life of the forgiven. Uh, It's the life of being transformed, and it is the life of the called. You have a purpose and a mission, an agenda for your life. So is your life shaped by this? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that we do not need to live a life of mourning. That would not be uh, appropriate for us to live like that. But like the Apostle Paul tells us, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. He says, again, rejoice. Thank you that we live in the light of Messiah come, not in the anticipation or the hope that one day that might perhaps be true, but the bridegroom is here. The transformation has begun. Forgiveness is for us. The call is made to us. There's so much uh, brokenness and hurt in our world. So much in our own lives, it's hard to get outside of that. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the trouble. But please, would you help us? Help us to find joy in the big truth. that It is finished that Messiah has come. Sin is forgiven. The kingdom is at hand you will build your church. Please help us not just to ascend to these things as something distant and outside of ourselves. But please, Lord, would you help this to be a truth that we can hold on to personally in the face of the sadness and the difficulty of life, but also uh, in the light of its shortness. In to come. Amen. Now, um, Twinkle's already on. It's fantastic. Um, in a moment, we're going to share bread and wine together to remember Jesus. It's something that Christians often call communion, and it's an important part of our life as a church. And we would really like our children to be present with us here for it and to help facilitate that. Can I ask you if you're a parent of somebody?